The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, we're in the book of Esther. We're in chapter 3. We're going to cover chapter 3, verse uh, 7, all the way to chapter 7, verse 10. And uh, two weeks ago, when we started the book of Esther, we saw God's presence when it doesn't seem like He's there. That's what we saw in the first three chapters. And just by way of reminder, God isn't mentioned in the book. Not by name, anyway. The Lord is not mentioned it's the only book of the Bible where the, the Lord is not mentioned explicitly. And yet we saw last week, He's there present, very present in the book, behind the scenes. In fact, as we're going to continue to see, He's the hero of the book. Uh, not necessarily Esther and Haman. Morde- not Haman for sure. Mordecai, I meant. Not Esther or Mordecai. They're not really the heroes, although God uses them. The hero of the story is God in His sovereignty who orchestrates events and works them out so that His people are spared and delivered and so that His Word is true. And so just by way of reminder, it takes, Esther takes place during the reign of King Xerxes. Uh, he goes by the title Ahasuerus in this book, which is just a Hebraized form of Xerxes. It's kind of like my father-in-law is John Anthony Fernandez, but sometimes he says, just call me Juan Antonio, right? We know that that's the same names. In the same way, Xerxes and Ahasuerus is the same name, but when the Hebrews would have Hebraized it, we learned last time that it would have sounded like King Headache when Ahasuerus was said, and he was a headache to the people of Israel. But King Xerxes is a guy that in our culture is most known for uh, fighting against the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, getting whooped in Greece a couple times later. He was trying to avenge his father's defeat at Marathon. And he had this out for the Greek people, and he wanted to have war. And this story actually takes place as he's preparing the councils for his war against Greece. And he gets rid of his queen Vashti because she won't appear before his drunken generals and nobles to be gawked at and stared at, and she refuses to appear before him. So he gets rid of her as queen, and he holds a beauty contest to have another queen. And in the providence of God, Esther, who is a Jew, is raised up to be his queen. And her uncle Mordecai, we saw at the end, at the beginning of chapter three, Mordecai had saved King Xerxes' life. But the one who gets elevated to a higher position isn't Mordecai, it's this man, Haman, who this week we're going to see is a wicked man. And so Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman, and that sets the stage for here in Esther chapter 3, verse 7. Because Mordecai wouldn't bow down, Haman evidently concluded that if Mordecai is a Jew and won't bow down, then neither will any of the other Jews, and so forth. They all need to be eradicated. The only solution to the problem is to wipe out the entire Jewish people. And so that's where we left it off last time, was with this threat of annihilation. And ultimately, as we're going to see today, 
This plot is ultimately Satan's plot. Not Haman's plot, it's Satan's plot. You know, and, and it, it sort of brings up this, this statement that kids learn at a very early age. If you've had kids, they say, that's not fair. I don't know if you've ever had your children say, that's not fair. Kids understand, children understand the concept of justice at a very early age. They look at the toy in their hand and they see the bigger, better, shinier toy in the other kid's hand and they say, that's not fair or candy, or whatever it is. And as we get older, we still have this sense of justice, don't we? We have this sense of, that's not fair. We don't like it when we see unjust judges rule in the favor of wicked people in our court system. And we say, that's not fair. We don't like it when our politicians use their power to their advantage and take advantage of people. We say, that's not fair. We have this sense of justice. Why is it? Because we're made in the image of God, who is a just God. And God's providence over evil schemes is the answer to our cry of that's not fair. That's what we're going to see today. God is sovereign over evil schemes. You know, this question of why does evil exist, it's been a question that's been asked since the beginning of time. And the Bible has an answer. You see, the, the accusation is if God is sovereign and He's all-powerful and He's all-good, then why does evil exist? But those three questions are not all of the questions. The last question we have to ask is, does God have a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists? Does God have a reason for allowing the evil to exist? And if He has a reason that is morally sufficient, that is right, that in the long term brings Him greater glory and us greater joy, then we cannot accuse God of being evil. We just don't understand it. And that's what we're going to see here in the book of Esther. God is prov providentially sovereign over wicked schemes. Well, let's read Esther chapter 3, verse 7. I'm just going to read uh, bits at a time. Rather than reading long sections, I'm just going to tell you the story as we go. But um, just to get the context, verse 6, he, that is Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that is the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, King Headache. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. 
So here we see in chapter 3, it's going to go into chapter 4, this threat against the Jews. And Haman here is requesting the death of the Jews. And his plan, his plan is to wipe them out. Now this is five years after Esther had become queen. This is after all of Xerxes' defeats in Greece. And ironically, Haman cast the lots for what was favorable. Haman, this was a practice in, in those cultures, was to cast lots to have fate determine what was the best day to make this decision to do this thing, to make this transaction, etc. And ironically, this day that ended up being the day that, that Haman thought was most favorable was going to end up being the day of the Jews' salvation, not Haman's. And we see right here, if we know the end of the story, that God is sovereign over fate, over chance. There's no such thing as luck. You should strike those words from your vocabulary. God is sovereign. There's no such thing as luck or fate or chance. We have a sovereign God who's seated in the heavens, who is ruling over all things and working His plan. That's what we heard in Psalm 137 last week, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. Now, Haman used a mixture of truth and error and exaggeration to convince the king. He said truth. These Jews were dispersed and scattered. He said half-truths. Their customs are different than ours. In other words, these customs are against yours. And then an outright lie. They don't obey the king's laws. We have no evidence they were disobeying the king's laws. The only one who refused to give honor was Mordecai to Haman. Now, when the king gave his signet ring to Haman, he was symbolizing unlimited authority to go do this act. So here's the edict in verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be read for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here's the edict. The king said, yeah, you go ahead and write it out, Haman. We'll stamp it, and it'll happen. And he mentions a day, the 13th day of the 12th month. And this day is important because a day that only the Jewish audience would know would be the 14th day, which was the day of Passover. So in the Jewish calendar, the 14th day was the day of Passover. The 13th day is the day they're scheduled to be wiped out. And yet, to the Jewish audience, there would have been great hope that just as God delivered His people in Egypt through the Passover, He would deliver His people again here in Persia. And He would pass over them in his wrath. And the one who would get what was coming to him was Haman. So this edict is given. And as I said before, ultimately, this isn't Haman's plot. This is Satan's plot. This is Satan's plot. We see throughout Scripture that Satan tries to eradicate the Jewish people. Satan is called in John 12, 31, 
the prince of this world. He's called in Ephesians 2, the rulers, the ruler of the kingdom of air. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world. And his reign, though, is temporary. In fact, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Seems like an odd place to turn, but I want to show you the sort of end of the story and go back to the beginning throughout Scripture about how Satan is trying to work this plan. In Revelation chapter 12, let's start um, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So here you have this picture of a biblical theology of redemptive history, how Satan, the great red dragon, he stood before this woman as she's about to give birth. And what a graphic picture that is, right? A dragon standing in the labor and delivery room ready to consume and devour a child just as soon as the woman gives birth. And this picture, the dragon's history is characterized in Scripture as one miserable failure after another. Let's go through a few of these. The conflict begins in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember that? Where Satan comes into the garden and he tells the woman he's, he's clothed as a serpent. A serpent like a dragon, right? He's clothed as a serpent and he tells the woman, the day you eat of this, you won't die. And her husband's right there with him, with her. Adam is right there with her and she eats of the fruit and Adam who's with her eats of the fruit and they die spiritually, and they begin to die physically. And the fall enters the world. The curse enters the world. And God promises there's going to be war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And there's going to be a descendant of the woman who comes and crushes the serpent's head. Now, this conflict begins in the garden. It's why Cain killed Abel. In Genesis 4, a satanically inspired murder that ultimately was unsuccessful because Eve gave birth to Seth, who was the appointed one in Genesis 4, verse 25. 
again later after Abraham is chosen and brought out of the land of Ur, the land of pagans, and he's made, God sets his affection upon Abraham and calls him out of that land and says, I'm going to make you a great nation in Genesis 12. He says, one of your descendants in them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we hear these stories in Genesis. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 20, where Abraham decides to go down to Egypt because of a famine. And Sarah is very nearly taken as a wife by these kings. Very nearly raped on two occasions, which would put the descendant of Abraham at risk, wouldn't it? If Abraham never, if Sarah never gave birth to Isaac, the line of the Messiah would be at risk. But yet God intervened. God saved Sarah. And then when all hope seems lost, when Sarah's beyond childbearing age in Genesis 17, a miracle happens. Isaac is born in Genesis 21. We see it in the conflict between Jacob and Esau over the birthright in Genesis 27. In Egypt, Pharaoh tries to have all the Hebrew baby boys killed in Exodus 1 to wipe out the Hebrews from the earth. He tries to kill the entire nation at the Red Sea in Exodus 14 with his army, and he fails. God swallows up the army by closing up the Red Sea on them. Now, the seed is promised through David, and the dragon twice, Satan twice, tries to uh, use Saul, who is oppressed by a demon, to throw a javelin at David in 1 Samuel 18. And the entire kingdom of Saul at one point tried to kill David when he was on the run. This one who was promised to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Satan's been trying to do it all along. The daughter of Ahab and Jezebel sought to destroy everyone who belonged to the line of David, but Joash was hidden away, the rightful heir of David. And here in Esther, Haman tries to destroy every Jew under heaven. But we're going to see the courage of Queen Esther preserves the line of Messiah. The idolatry of Israel manifested itself in their sacrificial offerings, even offering up their own children to Molech, a false god. And this happens from the exodus to the exile. And then we see Jesus born. And at the birth of Jesus, the dragon Satan inspires wicked King Herod to put to death all of the babies in Bethlehem aged two and under. Again, trying to swallow up this child. The dragon attacks Jesus in the wilderness when he's hungry and tired. He tries to have him thrown off a cliff. He seeks to destroy Jesus in Gethsemane, and he inspires Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And Jesus is tried and crucified and buried. And Satan must have thought, finally, he's dead. Finally. But three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead, conquering death and the grave. You see, the cross is the hidden wisdom of God. In bruising, uh, in Satan bruising Jesus' heel, as it were, the serpent's head was crushed. Fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The greatest wickedness was the means of ensuring his own destruction. And it's no accident that Haman's wickedness is actually the means of ensuring his own destruction. You see, the Father had planned this in Romans 5, we see this. Romans 5, verse 15. 
The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is, many died because of Adam's sin in the garden, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He says again in verse 19, for as many, uh, by the one man disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, this is the hope. This is the hope we have in the midst of wicked schemes when we don't see, when we don't see God as it were, we don't hear his name. He seems absent in our life and it seems like the wicked prosper. Doesn't that always seem to be the case? You have that happen at work. You do the right thing. You have integrity. You're honest. You don't take advantage of people. And that coworker that does take advantage of people who lies and steals and cheats and gets ahead, he gets promoted. And he gets the raise you need to provide for your family. You have that happen? I've had that happen. Not in the church. This is before I worked at the church. Where is God? Why do the wicked prosper? That's not fair. Well, God is provident over wicked schemes. He's providentially sovereign over them. In fact, He was sovereign over the wickedest scheme in human history, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And He's sovereign over our lives. And this should bring us great hope because God knows the end. And He's got a purpose and a plan. The cross was the hidden wisdom of God. God's plan is wisdom. And He will make all things right. And the cross tells us He's in the process of doing so. And if He didn't spare His Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? Go back to Esther. The city of Susa, the capital city that Xerxes was living in at the time, is thrown into an uproar because of this decree. And all the while, Xerxes and Haman are just drinking their wine and enjoying their life, not thinking much of it. And so here in chapter 4, we see a sequence of events. Mordecai and Esther really conspiring against Haman's plot. First, we see Mordecai's grief, chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so Esther, she hears of this. Now, she obviously hadn't heard of the king's decree. She hadn't heard of the plot. And so in verses 4 and 5, she has no idea why Mordecai is, is in such distress. And so this is what she does. Verse 4, when Esther's young women... And her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth so that he could come in and talk to her. That, I think, is the idea. But he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who'd been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Basically, Esther saying, Mordecai, why are you weeping? 
Mordecai's answer is in verse 6 to 8. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of his people. So Mordecai's answer is, they're plotting to kill us, and you need to go talk to the king and beg for mercy. And so Esther has a choice to make. Verse 9, Hathok went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Esther spoke to Hathok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So her, her choice is, do I risk my life going into the king's presence uninvited or not? What do I do? And then Mordecai asks her a question. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he says, I want to ask you a question. Now he doesn't mention God's name, but he says, hey, listen, God is sovereign. If you don't rise up, To go into the king and beg for mercy, God will deliver us from another way. But, who knows, perhaps this is why God allowed you to become queen in the first place for such a time as this. And we would say, of course, that's the whole point of the story. God is provident over wicked schemes. And to Mordecai, Esther was chosen as queen for a purpose. And the purpose was being the liberator of her people. It was far more important than her being queen. And I think this is, we have application in our own life. It just, you know, this week at Vacation Bible School, I was doing the teaching time, and and the last day was God has a purpose for your life, was the teaching point we were teaching the kids. And there is great hope in this, isn't it? Because one of the lies of Satan is to tell you that you have no purpose. Your existence is meaningless. You could just live and die off the face of this earth and it wouldn't make a difference. And that's what the world tells us. That's what, you know, the only way you could have a purpose is if you're famous or rich or have a lot of Instagram followers, I suppose, nowadays. That's the lie from Satan. You see, God God is sovereign and He's put you here for a purpose. He's placed you in this world for a purpose. And we know ultimately it's for His glory. It's to advance His kingdom. We can do everything else better in heaven, right? We can worship better. We, can, we won't sin. There won't be any sin in us. The one thing we can't do better is share the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission. So we're here for a purpose, to make disciples, to be used for His glory. And it starts in our home, doesn't it? With our children, with our spouses, in our church, in our community. And we're raised up... Uh, See, this is belief in providential calling. Solomon wrote about this in the book of Proverbs. 
he gave some Proverbs on this idea of providential calling. In Proverbs 16, we see in verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You know what he's saying there? We can make the plans we want to make, but ultimately when these plans are worked out, the answer is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Well, why would that be? Because He's sovereign. And if you're committing your work to the Lord, you will be in line with His plans. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured He will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Verse 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You hear what Solomon is saying is that God makes everyone for a purpose, that the plans that God has for your life, He will accomplish You need to get in line with the Lord's plans for your life and commit your work to the Lord in verse 3. And the Lord will establish your steps in verse 9. And so this question that Mordecai asks Esther, perhaps you're being raised up for such a time as this. That's a big question, right? For her, it's to save an entire nation, an entire people. But that same question could be asked of us even if we're only influencing one life, right? Perhaps you're being raised up for such a time as this to have influence in that person's life right now. You are the spokesperson God is going to use to bring life and hope and joy to that person. So back to Esther. Esther's decision. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 17. She gets up her courage And she says she will risk her life. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So now we're going to see the reversal of the plot. We're going to see God's hand at work, His providence over this. Esther in verses 1-8 to of chapter 5 appears before the king uninvited. This was an act of breaking the law by standing in the king's court without having been called. Esther comes to her moment of truth. She publicly confronts the king. Let's see what happens. On the third day, chapter 5, verse 1, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom." And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, the king quickly forgives Esther because she pleased him. And we, we saw this last time in chapter 2, after Esther is chosen, she pleased the king. But Esther didn't know this at the time. She thought she may very well die. But the king forgives her, extends his scepter, and then Esther doesn't immediately make the request at court. Instead, she invites Xerxes and Haman to a feast. And eventually, she's going to invite Haman to his own downfall. The time was not right at the first banquet, so she calls for another one. And this is a, something we don't necessarily understand in American culture. We like to get to the point. I used to love to tell my dad stories when I was a kid, and I would go on and on, and he's like, hey, what's the point? Just get to, what's the question you want to ask me? Oh, you want to go to the movies? Great. No. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, if it was an important question, if it was an important transaction, there had to be a lot of preparation, a lot of food, a lot of conversation, uh, small talk, as it were, before the question is asked. And so she says, not at the first banquet, if it please you, come again to another one. Well, it, it is really masterful how the story's written, because then in verses 9 to 14, Haman goes home and he thinks, wow. I'm really on the ends now. Not only does King Xerxes love me, but the queen loves me too. So what does he do? He goes home and talks to his wife. Verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Hey, we have an idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, isn't this amazing how the satisfaction, the joy, and the glory of the, and the approval of men, of, of human standards, is so quickly fading? Here he's recounting to all of his best friends and his wife how blessed he is, how he's been promoted, how he even has the favor of the queen, and he says, yet this thing is sticking in my craw. I can't wait to kill that Jew and all the people. There is no satisfaction in seeking the approval of men. <laughs> Only Christ satisfied. And what's amazing in the providence of God, Haman's actually preparing his own gallows. He built it for Mordecai, but he's going to end up being hanged from it. So, chapter 6, God, behind the scenes, without his name mentioned, decides to give Xerxes a sleepless night. Verse 1, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, 
probably was really big and thick and in the providence of God. They were read before the king, verse 1, but the story that was read to him, verse 2, is the story of how Mordecai saved his life. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or distinction is bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. And so the king, in the providence of God, he couldn't sleep. He opens up the books. He reviews the records. And it's the story of how Mordecai saved his life. This is the providence of God on display, isn't it? Haman's humiliated and Mordecai's honored. Eventually, Haman's humiliated. But the king decides, I need to honor Mordecai. Verse 5, the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman comes in. King says to him, I have a question for you. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, Ah, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Those would sell for a lot on eBay. Let the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king says, yes, that's a great idea. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai. The Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. You could just imagine Haman's face at this, couldn't you? Haman took the robes and the horse, and you could imagine as he dressed Mordecai, just the venom and the anger and just the... And then he leads him personally through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor. Wow. Haman humiliated, Mordecai honored. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall as of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She saw the handwriting on the wall. Your plan is going to fail. Chapter 7. In fact, that's what we see. Haman condemned to death. Haman had no idea. See, Haman had no idea in condemning the Jews. He was condemning the queen. And in doing so, he was threatening her life. But that's what happens. Let's read chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish? Queen Esther, it shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. 
for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who dares to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. See, the king's startled by this when he hears that Haman is responsible for the conspiracy. He can't even stay in the same room as him, and he leaves to go into his garden. He must have decided he wasn't personally going to kill him, but he was going out to think. Verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So Haman probably was falling to the feet of Esther to beg for his life, but the king misinterprets it like he was attacking Queen Esther. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Wow. What a, what a story, right? What a reversal. Here we see the wicked prospering. The cry of that's not fair seemed to resonate in Mordecai's ears. And yet, in the providence of God, he made everything right. He raised Esther up for such a time as that. In the providence of God, he even had Mordecai honored to take the place of Haman and to save all of his people. Now, Proverbs has a lot to say about wicked schemes. Proverbs eleven six. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. We see that in the life of Haman. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven: Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. The only purpose for digging a pit was to trap someone or something in it. And those who make evil schemes to try to trap people will end up falling into their own schemes. That's what Proverbs says. Proverbs 29.16, when the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. See, the story's not over. The Jews still have an edict calling for their annihilation, but that's for next time in two weeks. This cry of that's not fair, I would say here from Esther, what we would encourage you with is that the Lord sees all and will one day make all things right. And he started doing it in his son. We heard in 1 Samuel 2, God's glorious picture of his sovereignty. His sovereignty over wicked schemes. He's the one who kills. He's the one who makes alive. He's the one who gives barren women children. That's what Hannah was rejoicing about in that context. Turn over to Romans 8. And we'll close here. I know you know this passage well. But I want you to be encouraged by this. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good because all things are not good in this fallen world, are they? 
He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. There we hear it again, don't we? Those called according to the purposes of God, God will work everything out for their good and for His glory. This is why later He says, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Ultimately, no one. Yes, we can have enemies. We could have people even kill us. But in the bigger scheme of things, in light of eternity, there is no one who is against us because God is for us. And how do we know He's for us? He did not spare His own Son, verse 32, but gave Him up for us all. How, we not, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against you? No one. Why? Because Christ is the judge. He's the one who died. He's the one who was raised, verse 34. He's the one who's at the right hand of God the Father, who's interceding for us. He's our lawyer, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. He's not going to condemn us if we're in Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? What about persecution? What about famine? What about nakedness or danger or sword? Because as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. That's what Paul says. In these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our hope. You see, we don't ever want to say when bad things happen that God had nothing to do with it. That makes our God weak and impotent as if he couldn't be in charge of that also. No, we say our God causes those wicked things to work together for good. And in those wicked things, we're more than conquerors because he loved us in Christ. It's why we come to the table, to remember the finished work of our Savior. And what you and I need to know this morning, and instinctually, when we're pressed by trials, we need to know is that God the Father loves us in his Son. He's not punishing us as if He's cast us off and He's going to remove us from His presence forever. No, He loves us so much He's allowed these trials and tribulations and distresses to come into our life so that we'd be more like Jesus. So that we would glorify Him more. So that we would learn not to trust in ourselves but to trust in Him who raises the dead. That's why He does it. He's a good Father in heaven who knows how to conform his children into the image of his son. And that's what he's doing in your life and in my life, through trials, through distresses, through wicked schemes. And everything will be made right. That's the promise of the cross. Everything will be made right. And Christ is the first fruits. He was raised from the dead. It was made right. He was killed unjustly. He was killed wrongly. He was the only innocent person and he was put to death at a cross. But God made it right by raising him from the dead. And he's going to make everything right in your life, Christian. He will. He will do it. It may not be in this life, but he will make everything right. That's what Revelation says, right? 
He's going to wipe away all the tears from her eyes, all the sorrow, all the sadness, and we're going to be with him forever, and we're going to serve him, and he's going to be in our presence. And he will be a father to us, and we will be his children. Revelation 21. Father, thank you for this word. I thank you for this story of Esther. Because so often, I feel like this is like the story of my life, Father. Sometimes I wonder, where are you in the midst of my life? I go through my days, I, I think if, if I'm not in your word, if I'm not praying, I could go through the whole day without hearing your name and just living life and going through the motions and raising my kids and doing my job and buying the groceries and paying the bills and all of those things, Father, and yet you are sovereignly working your purposes. May we remember that you are on your throne and you do what you want. You do what pleases you. And what pleases you is to bring us to yourself and your son, to call us your children, to make us saints and righteous in your sight. Give us your spirit as a down payment and pledge so that we would bear fruit, that we are your workmanship, created in Christ for good works. Oh, Father, may we walk in them these good works that you've prepared, living out this purpose that you have for us, raised up for such a time as this. I pray in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.